one. I don't have a page number for you, but it should be easy to find, especially if you just cut your Bible, the pew Bible there, the blue Bible, right in half. You'll fall into the Psalms and you can find it from there. It was interesting this past week as I was studying this Psalm um, that I discovered that the motto of the University of Calgary is taken from Psalm 121 and verse 1. I will lift up my eyes. And I find it interesting that there are several universities in Canada, including the university my son graduated from, the University of Alberta, that also has a Bible verse as its uh, motto as well, as does the University of Regina. The words of Jesus, where he says, as one who serves. So Jesus, the servant leader, I am among you as one who serves. That is from the University of Regina. So it's interesting that these institutions that have largely fallen away from any sense of biblical moorings, have roots that go back in these ways to the Bible. But Psalm 121 is a much beloved psalm by many, many people. Uh, Our familiar words that we read here, familiar promises that God gives to his people. I was reading this past week of David Livingston, missionary to the continent of Africa, and how he in 1840 stood on the docks in London to say farewell to his family at the age of 27. And what did he read? He read Psalm 121 to them as his parting words as he went off to to the mission field to die on the continent of Africa. So this is a wonderful psalm. It's filled with many great promises. And let's read it now and then we'll begin to look into it. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see and hearts to respond to your word and to your spirit here this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I have a silly question for you. Do you ever worry? Do you ever worry about things? I know many people worry Every one of us has succumbed to worry at some point in our lives. I can remember when I was a very young Christian that I used to worry about whether I was a believer or not. Am I really saved? That's a common worry that new Christians often have. Am I really a Christian? Like, how can I know? I mean, I sinned today, so that must mean I'm not a Christian. God's unhappy with me. Bad things are happening in my life. And so we worry about these things. And I can remember when I was only a Christian for several weeks that I went to the Billy Graham crusade at BC Place here in Vancouver. He was here in 1984 in the fall. He was there for four nights and I went there all four nights. And I was so insecure about my salvation, I went forward all four nights. I signed the card all four nights. I received the Gospel of John package from them all four nights. I'm very, very grateful and thankful that I don't have to worry about that any longer. I don't think about whether or not I'm a Christian any longer. I know that uh, as I've grown in the promises of God and the salvation Jesus has offered me, that I'm safe and secure in his hand and no man shall pluck me out of his hand. And I know that that is many of your testimonies as well. 
that we can feel safe and secure in the arms of Jesus. But what about fear? Fear. We can take worry and then we can go another level. Fear. Do you ever succumb to fear? Fears in this world. Of course, you succumb to that as I do sometimes as well. We have fears that take hold and they grip us. My old counseling professor from seminary said that fear is worry gone wild. Fear is worry gone wild. It's just another level. We allow those worries to take hold and then those worries grow into fear and then we succumb to those fears. Worry takes hold, it leads to fear. Fear is worry gone wild. Does God's word speak to fear and worry? Well, thankfully it does all over the place. We can think of Matthew chapter 6. We can think of Philippians 4. We can think of many, many places we could turn to, including this one that is right before us this morning here at Psalm 121. I did the devotional for our youth uh, last Saturday night. It was a great time being there with the youth uh, on that evening. And, but before the festivities got going, I received a phone call from my four-year-old grandson. And he was fearful. He had gone to bed earlier that evening, but then he woke up with a nightmare. And he wanted to talk to his granddad and ask his granddad what he does when he's afraid. And so I explained to him how I read the, the Bible, how I pray to the Lord, and how he can do those things too. And he can pray with his mom who's right there to console him and give him a hug. But we see fear in the lives of not only young people, we can see it right through life and we could see it right into old age. Fear is something that we, if we are not careful, it can take root and take hold in our lives and get us off track. And we see that throughout the Bible. We read from 1 Kings 18 earlier, and we see Elijah there confronting 450 men, prophets of Baal. But do you know what happens in the next chapter in 1 Kings 19? We see that he's afraid. We see that Jezebel... Is wants to kill him because of what he's done to the prophets of Baal. And so, very, very quickly, we see the Lord working on his behalf, and then all of a sudden, we see that he is gripped from, from fear and literally is running for his life. We see that in chapter 19 and verse 3. He's so afraid, he runs for his life. He runs away in fear. And what we see here in this psalm, and what we see in Psalm, from Psalm 120 to 134, these are called psalms or songs of ascent. And the ancient Israelites would sing these as they were on their way to Jerusalem. They would venture to Jerusalem at least three times a year for three major feasts. And as they did so, they would sing these psalms, these songs of ascent as they went. And so you can picture Jesus in these caravans going. He probably made this trek at least a hundred times in his lifetime to Jerusalem and singing these psalms as they would have gone along. They probably had all of the psalms memorized, certainly these ones memorized. Maybe Jesus even had the entire New Testament memorized. We could probably think so. But they would sing these songs as they went. And you know what they would discover as they went to the city of Jerusalem? And they looked around the hillsides. Of course, Jerusalem, Mount Zion is one hill, but there are hills that go around it, quite close to it. What they would see up there were different gods, different idols that would be plastered on top of the mountains that were there. So Baal, Molech, Asherah, the male-female gods, they were all enshrined on the tops of these mountains. And they would pick the tops of the mountains because they believed that if you're on top of the mountain, you're closer to the gods. 
And so they would set up these shrines that were there all around the city. And so we can see here that the psalmist is telling us, am I going to look to these pagan gods that are around the hillsides? Am I going to look to those false gods, those dead gods? No, I'm going to look to the Lord. We see that in verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He's looking to those hills. He's looking to the mountains. But he's not looking to those false gods. He's looking to the true and the living God. He's not looking to those dead idols. He's looking to the one who made the heavens and the earth, who made the mountains and the hills. He's looking to the creator of all things that we see here, the one who created heaven and earth. I will look to the one who made the hills, who created all things. Now think about this. If God created everything, you, me, the world, all creatures, everything, the universe, all things, if God did all of that, is anything too difficult for him? I would say, no, nothing is impossible with God. If he can do all of that out of nothing, that's what our Bible tells us, that he spoke, and in the space of three days, he creates all things out of nothing. If God can do that, he can truly do anything. He can help me. The psalmist is is looking for help. He helped the psalmist. He can help me. He can help you in the areas that you need help in in your life. And thankfully, we can say that we are not deists, that we are theists. Now, what did deists believe? Deists believed that, well, God is very cold and detached from his creation. He's not intimately involved at all in his creation. He just kind of wound things up like a clock, sets it up on the mantle, and then he's done with it. He doesn't care. He's finished with it. He's off doing other things in the universe somewhere else. Thankfully, that's not our God. Our God does care about us. Our God does care about the trials and the sufferings and the difficulties we encounter in this life. He is not remote and detached. He's intimately acquainted and involved with all of creation and with you and with me. So he cares about us. He cares about the issues of life. And that is what we see here pictured in Psalm 121. That God is infinitely interested. That God knows and he knows us from afar off, and he is not removed from us. He is very, very close at hand. And we see the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, verses 25 to 27, says that God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Have you ever thought about that? That God created you uniquely for this particular period of time and to live in this particular place, in this particular region. We see that he allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God has chosen that for us, where we're going to live, the time period that we're going to be in, all of these different things. God does. God created us to be alive now and God sustains us in the here and now. And that should make a tremendous difference to us in the way that we live our lives, especially when you wake up, as I sometimes do, at three o'clock in the morning. And those worries, those concerns start to creep in. 
And if we're not careful, then they're going to drive us into fear. We can have all a list of a litany of different things that we can be worried and concerned about, from family items to personal items to grandchildren to whatever's going on in the world, all kinds of things that we can worry about and that can create fear within us. And I hope that when that happens to you, that you will quickly go to a passage like this and remind yourselves of God's care and his love for you, that he's not detached. If we look within ourselves, what's going to happen? We're going to get depressed. If we look around the world or at the world around us, we're going to get distressed. We need to look, we need to lift our eyes unto the Lord and look to him. We must lift our eyes, not to the idols of this world. They're going to be no help at all, but to the Lord. There are lots of places that we could look. We could look to idols of drugs, to alcohol, to various sexual deviancies, to all kinds of things that would want to take our attraction away from lifting up our eyes to the Lord. These things are all idols. These things are all gods that the psalmist could have attached himself to as well. But he says, no, my God isn't made with human hands. My God isn't of this kind of order. My God is of another world. My God is so big that he made all of the mountains. He's not an idol propped up on the mountains. He is not Baal or Moloch or the, he is the Lord of heaven and of earth. And we see in Psalm 18, verse 30 and 31, these great verses here. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? God is unique. God is different. He is not an idol. He is not something to be worshipped where they fashion it with their hands. They make graven images of them. And we all need help. The psalmist needed help. And he's looking to the Lord for help. And we often need help as well. And the problem is sometimes the things that we go to for help are going to be no help at all. They're just going to further our despair. Our help is in the Lord only. And there is nothing beyond his ability. He truly is a God who is help, that he makes prompt, that helps, that makes promises to us, has the power to fulfill his promises. He makes very particular promises and he perseveres right to the end in his promise keeping. And we see that for us here. Secondly, he is the God who keeps. We see that in verses 3 through 5. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. He will not let your foot be moved. He will keep you. And this word keeps here, we see this repeated six times through this through this psalm here. And it's from the Hebrew word shamar. And we see it here repeated. And when we see repetition in the Bible, we should take notice. And maybe your version changes it. And maybe it says preserve. But it's actually the word shamar. And it's repeated here six times in the, in the, in the uh, Hebrew text. And it means to preserve. It means to hedge about. It means to protect. It means to guard. It means to keep. He's not occupied somewhere else. He doesn't slumber or sleep. Again, that is the mockery that Elijah gave to these prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, right? Where he's saying, what, is your God asleep? Is he out relieving himself somewhere? He's just otherwise occupied. He can't deal with you guys. 
And so what did they do? What was their response to Elijah's word? They began to cut themselves. Now why would they do that? Well, because they believed that you had to incite the gods. And so they did things like this, like cutting themselves. They had the ancient uh, Canaanites, and which infected, sadly, the ancient Israelites. They had, they had uh, temple prostitution because they believed that you needed to incite the gods to have sexual union, these male and female gods. And so they would get together. They would have temple prostitutes. They would have sexual unions there at the temple. Yes, they did that. And then because they wanted the gods to be incited to do the same so that these gods would bring fertility to your crops, would enhance your livestock, would bring fertility to you as a couple so you could bear children. All of these different things they tried to do with all of these dead idols and dead gods. We can be thankful that God is not that way, that God never slumbers or sleeps. He doesn't need to be incited to pay attention to us. When you wake yourself up at three in the morning, just pray a a simple prayer. Lord, there's no point in both of us being up. And I know you're going to be, so I can sleep. We, We can put our head on our pillow and sleep because God isn't going to. God is going to keep us. He's going to protect us. He's going to guard us and undergird us and be with us. He keeps. He's a keeper. Keep. We see that repeated six times through our passage. God is the one who keeps you. He hedges you about. He guards you. He protects you. And we see that protection further explained in verses 6 through 8. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That verse 6 is interesting. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. What does that mean? Well, it simply means that God is going to be with you 24-7. He doesn't keep office hours. He's not just going to be with you while you're here on a Sunday morning and then He doesn't care about you the rest of the week. He's going to be removed and detached from you till you return next week. No, God doesn't deal with us that way. God is always with us. And one commentator says that what you have here is a pair of opposites that include everything in between. A pair of opposites that include everything in between. He doesn't just pay attention to us when we're here. He pays attention to us always through our entire week 24-7. The Lord will keep us always. He is the God who will keep us kept. And then in verses 7 and 8, we see that not only does this cover the present and our future while we're alive, but it's going to go on right into eternity. It's going to cover the entirety of our human experience. Everything in life, all that we do, all that we say, all that we think, the Lord is going to be alongside with us in these things. But it seems to be saying to us that we're never going to experience any trials, any sufferings, any hardships in the Christian life. We're just going to Skate right through unscathed. We know that that is not the truth. We know that that is not the Christian life. It doesn't mean that nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. That there won't be accidents or sickness or temptation or different things that come along. There are bad things that happen to us. There's no exemption to us in the Christian life. Christians get sick. Christians have accidents. 
Christians have marriages that crumble. Christians have jobs that get lost. Children that go astray. All kinds of different things that happen to us in our Christian lives. I find that when we look at at promises like this and we think about these different things and we consider them, we need to put the things in context with the entirety of Scripture. We need to compare Scripture with Scripture. And what we find when we do that is we find how other people deal with bad things that would happen to them in their lives and the perspective the perspective that they gain and that they have. And so when we read a passage like this and we could easily think that on the surface that means we're never going to have any trials, we can look at the people of God and see that they too went through trials. One example that I'll give you is from the life of Joseph. What would Joseph think of in, if he was reading Psalm 121? You know, we can think of Joseph and the hatred that his brothers had for him, how they wanted them de- him dead, but then they think, well, no, we'll just sell, sell him into slavery instead. And then he goes, and then he's, then he's falsely a- accused of uh, seducing Potiphar's wife, and then he's thrown into prison, and he's there in prison, and he's forgotten during that time. How would he look at Psalm 121? What would he think? Would he be thinking, this is not possible, this is not true, my, my, foot, my feet surely are moved. This psalm says my feet won't be moved. My feet surely are moved. This, this psalm says there will never be anything evil. I'll be kept from evil. But yet these evil things have happened to me. My foot is moved. And is that not what we do sometimes? When things happen, we think, boy, is this what I get for following the Lord? How could this, if God is all good, how could this happen to me? If God is truly sovereign, then why doesn't He take this away? If God has the power to deal with this thing in my life, why doesn't He just do it? And do it now. I need relief. I need help. I'm in distress. But sometimes God doesn't do that. And we can see at the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50 and verse 20, what does Joseph say there? He's talking to his brothers and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so the evil, the suffering, and the trials God employs in His life and in our lives, God uses those things in our lives to bring about good. And sometimes that's going to take eternity to see. Sometimes, like in Joseph's life, we can see how God worked through those evil things and brought about good in his life and in the lives of thousands of other people. But sometimes in the hardships, the difficulties, the trials, the sufferings that we have in this life, we're not going to see God's plan and God's wisdom and God's love and care in those things until we have a perspective of eternity. But we see here that He will not let your foot slip. That means He will not let your soul be lost. You're going to spend eternity with Him if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows what he is doing. And that's why Luther can say great words like this. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. Because he knew the God that knew. He trusted that God. He was obedient to that God. He might not have known all of the future and all that God was up to. But he obediently followed the Lord and what he knew the Lord was calling him to do. He treasured Christ above all else. The Lord truly was his keeper. And the Lord is our keeper as well. We see this very, very clearly. And this is a, a main point that I, that I want you to see. 
we have to be clear here that keeping is not the same as sparing. Keeping is not the same as sparing. Sometimes God doesn't spare us from sufferings and from trials. He keeps us through them, but he does not spare us. And we see Joseph, his brothers want him dead. We see David in the Bible and his, his son wants him dead. Uh, King Saul wants him dead. They were kept through trials. They weren't spared from trials. And we see that even in the words of the Apostle Paul that we read earlier from 2 Timothy chapter 4. We see Paul here. He's saying that, that the Lord rescued me from the lion's mouth. And he says in verse 18 there that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. That sounds a lot like Psalm 121. And yet what happened? What happened in the life of the Apostle Paul? The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. These are some of the final words of the Apostle Paul. He said that the Lord rescued him and yet within weeks or maybe months of him writing this, he was executed. And what do we make of that keeping of the Lord? Well, Paul answers it for us. Joseph answered it for us. And bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And so we see that within the promises of God, there is an eschatological component to them. Some of the fulfillment of the promises of God we will not see in this life. We will see them unfolding in eternity. They will be fully realized in the life to come. God will fulfill every single promise that he's ever made fully in this life or in the next life to us. So this psalm doesn't tell us that we will walk through life unscathed, that we will never encounter any suffering. And Psalm 121 is not saying that God will keep us from all pain. We'll never experience any trials, any sickness, any difficulties in this world. What it is saying is that if you are trusting in the Lord, if you are trusting in Him, then none of those things, no sufferings, no trials, no crosses, no losses, will ever keep you from Him. You will be kept for all eternity, from this time forth and forevermore. So, as we wrap up in the last five minutes or so here, when things seem as though they're not going the way that we would like, when God doesn't seem to be answering in the time we would like or in the way that we would like. What do we do with those things? Well, it's easy for us to go to a, a lack of trust mode where we're not trusting in God, where we are no longer thinking that He truly has our best in mind for us. We can begin to uh, succumb to unbelief. And when we do that, those fears and anxieties and worries are all going to creep in. But we see what the psalmist does here between verse 2 and verse 3. He does something interesting in our passage here. There's a bit of a transition that takes place there. He uses I and my, and then he goes to your and you between verses 2 and verse 3. I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And he goes on in that that mode for the rest of the psalm. Now what is he doing there? He's doing something that we should do. Especially at 3 o'clock in the morning. Instead of listening to himself, he begins to talk to himself. Talking to himself the promises of God. And we see this 
Uh, David does this in Psalm 42 and verse 5. Another familiar verse to you. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? So he's talking to himself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Talking to himself the promises of God instead of listening to himself the words of unbelief. He's gripping the promises of God there. David fights back against that unbelief, the worry, the fear, and talks to himself of how good and how great God is. He looks to the God who is his help and his hope. My help comes from the Lord, verse 2. Helplessness. Have you ever felt helpless? That's a, a terrible place to be in, along with hopelessness. Hopelessness and helplessness. And the psalmist here is looking for help. And when we are helpless, that is often the best place for us to be in. Now we have a prime opportunity to God, for God to do what only He can do. We come to an end of ourselves and we give things up and over to God. We are helpless. We need Him to work and to act. But sometimes deep down we pray and think that God is always going to intervene and remove all of those hardships immediately. And sometimes the way towards the fulfillment of God's providences or God's promises in his providence and decrees is a very, very rocky road. It's through mountain passes. It's through deep, dark valleys. It's through lonely hospital rooms. It's through doctor's offices while we wait for the results of a test. That is often the way that God fulfills his promises to us. And when God doesn't do things the way that we want them done, when God doesn't answer our prayers the way that we want, we can wonder sometimes if we can still trust God. Can we still trust God no matter what those results say? Can we still trust God when the wheels seem to be coming off of life where just one day after another we seem to be beaten down and downtrodden? Can we still trust that God is out for our good? Well, we see the promises made to us here in Psalm 121 that these are guarantees from God that he makes promises to his people. He has the power to fulfill them and he will persevere right to the end. He will be our God from this time forth and forevermore. That he doesn't abandon his people in the midst of trouble, that trouble but he is an ever-present God with us through our troubles. And so we see... We can't say when trials come along that, see, there it is, God has abandoned me. He's finished with me. He's done with me. He's going to move on to other people who are more obedient. He's going to move on to other people who are more gifted than I am. He's just going to move on from me. He's done with me. During our midweek study at, at my house and some of you other groups as well are, are doing the book of Judges. It's a, it's a terrible book on the one hand, but it is an awesome book on the other hand as we see God at work in the ancient Israelites. And in chapter 6 that we covered a couple of weeks ago of that book, we see that repeated refrain that is just continual through the book. We see that, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We see that just cropping up time and again, and we wonder, will these people ever get it? Like how daft can they be? They see God deliver them from evil, and yet they succumb to it again. They don't have peace for very long. The people do evil in the sight of the Lord. And then we have to wait and catch ourselves. And we see ourselves in the story. 
that we too succumb to evil, that we too do evil in the sight of the Lord. And what does God do? What does God do with the ancient, ancient Israelites? He, does he just cast them away and say, I'm done with you. I'm going to the Amalekites or to the otherites. I'm finished with you guys. I'm going to move on. You're done. No, he doesn't do that. The Lord sends a prophet to speak his word to the people and he says in part that I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I was faithful to my promises to leave you out of that land of slavery. I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear. See, that was one of their problems. They feared. We see that fear cropping up in the Bible again. It's a common problem in the Bible, a common problem in our own hearts. But you have not obeyed my voice, the prophet said, the words of the Lord. You have not obeyed my voice. And just when you think the hammer of God's judgment is going to fall very decisively, very acutely upon the Israelites, just when you think he's done with them, he's he's going to give a final pronouncement and just pronounce judgment finally upon them that they're done. We read of the angel of the Lord appearing with words of great mercy and grace. And the angel of the Lord said, the Lord is with you. Exactly the opposite of what we might expect. The Lord is with you. He sent the help that they needed to get them back repentant and on track. And where would we be if God gave us the judgment that we deserve instead of demonstrating his love toward us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, God sent us what we needed. We needed a Savior, and that's what God gave us. God gave us a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks to us through His Word, by His Spirit, through pastors, through other godly people in your life, who speaks Word much like the prophet did, that God is with us. We can be reminded that there's only one person who ever walked this earth who truly deserved to be spared from all evil, who walked perfectly in this world, the only one who deserved to be spared from all suffering, who took upon Himself the greatest of all suffering, on the cross. Christ went to the cross for the joy set before him. What was that joy that was set before him? That joy was your reconciliation and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. Your reconciliation and his exaltation. That we would be with him for all of eternity. And so we see here That there at the cross, God uses evil to defeat evil. God uses evil to defeat evil. God turns evil on itself to defeat evil. He didn't give the ancient Israelites what they deserved, and He doesn't give us what we deserve. He's merciful to us. He gave us what we needed. We needed help, like the psalmist does here. And the Lord gives us help. God's mercy and grace is boundless. There's no boundary to it. And we see here that in his mercy and grace and goodness that he often uses the hard things in life to show us that all we truly need in this world is himself. That he is all we need. And sometimes he will strip away those other things, even good things, to show us that. That he is all that we need. That we are to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. That we are to delight ourselves in the Lord and He will give us the desires of our heart. That in our weakness and in our distress, we need to remind ourselves of the words 
that we read here in the words of Judges chapter 6, that the Lord is with you. Our help comes from the Lord, that he will not let your foot be moved, that the Lord is your keeper from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we do thank you that you are our keeper and nothing, no person, even ourselves can remove you, can remove us from your hand. And so we thank you, Lord, for these great promises. We thank you that you have the promise to fulfill them and that you will fulfill them, every single one of them, fully and completely. Because you are a God who doesn't do things halfway. You will see us through. Through this life we will be kept and into eternity we will be kept. To the praise of the glory of your great name, we thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.